Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to one of our Reimagining Love solo deep dive episodes. Okay, so I really wanted to create an episode to discuss this common statement that I hear quite often, which is, I love my partner, but their family is toxic. As is often the case with me, I started to dive into this topic and do my research and prep my notes. And the deeper I got in, the more I realized that I have a lot I want to talk with you about in terms of this topic. So you are right now listening to part one of what has become a two-part series in which I'm going to use relational self-awareness tools to help you and your partner navigate a complicated relationship with your partner's parents. Today's episode is going to focus on why in-law dynamics can be so very difficult. And if this is something that you're going through, my hope is that this episode is going to validate the challenges that you're facing and offer you some new ways of thinking and feeling and behaving in relation to this situation. Part two, which is going to come out next week, will focus on how to handle complex in-law dynamics. I'm going to provide relational self-awareness questions and strategies to each member of the couple, the one who was born into the complicated family and the one who is joining the complicated family. I will talk about strategies that a couple can use to navigate the dynamic and keep it from eroding trust and connection. So if you are already a newsletter subscriber, just a heads up that in next week's newsletter, you will receive the companion worksheet for this series. It will be delivered right into your inbox. And the worksheet is going to highlight key takeaways and give you the relational self-awareness prompts that you need to integrate the material from these episodes. 
If you are not already a subscriber, you can head to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash subscribe to join the newsletter, or you can just click the link in the show notes. Okay, so let's frame this out a little bit. We're tackling some complex dynamics in a relationship system that involve multiple people, right? So I'm talking this episode about the members of the couple and one of the partner's parents. So just so that you know, in order to keep it simple, I'm going to be talking to you as if you are the one who has a partner with problematic parents. And I'm going to keep our lens focused tight, tight, tight on the couple and their struggle with one set of parents. Down the road, I suspect that I will come back and do another episode in which I focus directly on the experience of parents, right? To explore the challenges that parents sometimes face as their adult kids are dating and partnering and marrying. But for right now, I'm focusing on the couple and what it's like when one partner has parents who are particularly challenging. And then also for simplicity... I'm going to be using the term in-laws throughout both of these episodes to describe your partner's parents. We tend to, at least in English, we tend to use the term in-laws in reference specifically to the parents of a married couple, but everything that I'm going to talk about is relevant to you, whether you are dating your partner, engaged to your partner, or married to them. And by the way, the people I'm referring to as your partner's parents might in fact be a single parent or a parent and a step-parent, right? Again, it doesn't matter. We're talking about general themes that come up between these two generations. So I have full confidence that no matter your location in this relationship matrix or the idiosyncrasies of your particular situation, because you know when we're talking about families, idiosyncrasies abound, don't they? I feel really confident that you are going to find bits of wisdom for your situation throughout this episode. The title of this episode is, I love my partner, but their family is toxic. And I want to spend just a moment on this word toxic. It's not a word that you would find in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, meaning that it's not a formal or a clinical or a diagnostic term that therapists use. It's a word that's in the common vernacular. We chose to use this word in the title of the episode because it's a word that I find we're throwing around a lot these days. But to be honest with you, I don't find this word to be particularly helpful. I don't find it helpful to describe people as toxic or relationships as toxic. And I'll tell you what the two problems are that I have with labeling someone toxic. The first problem is it doesn't really tell us very much. It's sort of a shorthand that implies that someone is problematic or difficult or manipulative or dishonest or interpersonally malicious, but it doesn't really tell us much about what's going on. And the second thing is that when we stick that label on a person, this person is toxic. We stop being curious about relationship dynamics. So rather than being curious about our role, And rather than being open to some potential around healing and shifting 
and moving towards a deeper understanding, calling someone toxic kicks us into a self-protective mode. They are toxic. Therefore, they are the problem. Therefore, any relationship drama begins and ends with them. And therefore, the only option available to me is putting up clear and firm boundaries in order to keep myself emotionally safe and protected. Now, having said that, I validate that there are actual mental health challenges that when left undiagnosed and untreated, hold the power to wreak havoc on people's lives and their relationships. And sometimes the best we can hope for is to minimize or mitigate the damage and relational fallout. And I validate, validate, validate that there are actual a-holes in this world. There are people who do not have your back. There are people who are actually hell-bent on creating drama wherever they go. I validate both of these realities. And sometimes self-protection and rigid-ass boundaries are exactly what the doctor ordered. But that can't possibly be our whole answer to complicated in-law dynamics, because what then would we do with the rest of our time here on these two episodes of Reimagining Love? Therefore, I'm going to challenge us to look with a bit of a critical and nuanced eye at the dynamics that happen between a couple and one of the partner's families. So if you're struggling in your relationship with your partner's family, I really hope that you're going to listen with an open mind and an open heart. See if you can hold on to your pain and your frustration while also seeing if you can open up some new possibilities, some new perspectives, some new kinds of responses. And if and when you find yourself feeling reactive to anything that I'm saying, just notice it, like put a little pin in it, right? Notice when my words or my perspective is pissing you off or annoying you, or you want to yeah, but me, just notice it and know that your emotional reactions, your yeah, but your irritation, your emotional reaction is pointing you towards something really important inside of you, a pain point, a wound that warrants your attention. So use your reactions in that way. That's relational self-awareness, right? It's you practicing relational self-awareness in your relationship with me as your podcast host. So, okay, let's talk a bit about family system development. There's an old saying that when you marry someone, you marry their family. And although this may sound a little bit enmeshed for your liking, there is no getting around the fact that when two people become a couple, they create a bridge between their relationship and two entire family systems, right? The relationship becomes this bridge that connects families. It also means that when two people become a couple, it marks a significant life stage transition in the life of a family system. It's so cool in so many ways. And I'm going to give you two quick examples. So my husband, Todd, has two brothers and each of these couples, so there's three couples and each of us, Todd and I, Mike and Bonnie, Dave and Tanya, all three of these couples have two kids each, which means that there are six kids, right? This six cousin crew. 
and they range in age from now 26 years old to 12 years old. And so when the oldest cousin fell in love and began to head towards marriage, it was really cool to see the younger cousins get to know his partner better, right? And the younger cousins sort of took it upon themselves to make sure that she understood all the private jokes and all the rituals that this little, you know, crew of six had been developing and honing over all these years. So introducing her to their little group gave them a chance to showcase who they are and what they're all about. Another example, one of my students told me that she has an older sister and the older sister is dating somebody quite seriously. And she shared recently that it's so fun when her older sister's boyfriend spends time with her little nuclear family. Because he notices idiosyncrasies about the family, like these little features of the family's microculture. And when he highlights them, they see something about themselves that's otherwise just background noise. So that's what's happening, right? Two people are becoming a couple. And at the very same time, the parents or the attachment figures of each member of that couple are becoming in-laws, And this is a role, this role called (laughs) in-law, is a role that these people have likely never played in their lives, right? By definition, they haven't played this role, a new descriptor. And in fact, it's a role that they likely have only learned about by watching and experiencing how their own parents and their own in-laws did that role when they themselves became a couple years before. I bring this up to you as a bit of a compassion opener because so many of the roles we end up playing in a family system are roles that we have received absolutely zero training or preparation for. And every role we have in our family system is a role that is guaranteed 100% going to kick up some dust inside of us. It's going to create some internal emotional stir. And it is absolutely 100% our responsibility to use our tools of relational self-awareness to get curious about what this new role stirs up inside of us. So for example, let's imagine there's a woman and she's becoming a mother-in-law and she starts to notice that she's feeling competitive with her kids, partners, mother. So imagine, for example, that her son tells her a story that he and his wife went out to dinner with the wife's parents, and she notices a flush in her cheeks and a quickening of her heart. She notices thoughts like, what? Why didn't they invite us? And thoughts like, I wonder if they have more fun with her parents instead of us. And the emotions attached to the thought and the physiological sensations is a mixture of sadness and fear and a little bit like a tinge of anger. So these sensations, cognitions, and emotions are completely understandable, right? Like they just happen. We're just humans who have reactions to the stuff that happens around us. And rationally and logically, she knows that her son is a grown-ass man And she knows that her son has plenty of love in his heart for all of the people in his life, including her. And at the very same time, she can in an instant 
call up an image of her son as a little boy. And she remembers all of those years when she was the absolute center of his world. Now, it is 100% her work to tend to those feelings. I want her to be in dialogue with her friends, with her partner, with her therapist, in dialogue, processing and working to understand why she gets competitive and a little salty when she hears stories about what her son and his wife are doing with the other side of the family, right? I want her to be talking through all of what this new mother-in-law role is stirring up inside of her. Why? Well, for two very important reasons. The first reason I want her to be getting support for what this role is stirring up in her is that every new role we play in our lives is a crucible. Every new role stirs up emotions and those emotions point us towards whatever is unhealed and untended to inside of us, right? Therefore, every new role holds the power to grow us. And every new role has the potential, therefore, to make us kinder and braver and wiser and more loving versions of ourselves if we're willing to take a look at what it is that's getting stirred up, which is the jealous feelings, the petty thoughts, the passive-aggressive urges. The stir is welcome, Always, always, always. But we have a choice and a responsibility about what we do with the stir. The second reason I want her to be getting support for what this new role is stirring up inside of her is that when we don't attend to the stir, we act out the stir. So if she does not get curious about the stir, if she does not get support for the stir, she will act it out the internal stir will become behavior. Either she'll become passive aggressive with her son. Well, it was nice of you to invite me. Or she'll gossip about her daughter-in-law's parents, which will then further drive a wedge. Or she'll pull back and not invite her son and daughter-in-law to quote unquote punish them, which will then erode connection even further. My all-time favorite quote, is from psychiatrist Viktor Frankl. And it goes, between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So in this example, the stimulus is her son and daughter-in-law having dinner with the daughter-in-law's parents. When she's willing to sit in that space, that space between stimulus and response and tends to her stir, then she gets to choose her response. And if she tends to the stir and works the stir, then her response is going to be more loving, more expansive, more based on bounty than scarcity, right? So perhaps she invites them to dinner herself, or perhaps she says, I would love to get all six of us together. When might we be able to do that? What I'm wanting is for this new mother-in-law to be compassionate and curious about the emotional responses she's having to the new role that she's in. And if the emotional response is jealousy and competitive feelings, I also want her, frankly, to do a little bit of what we call ghost busting. She can get curious about how her own past is shaping her experience of her son and daughter-in-law. Here's five questions that she might want to ask herself. One. When else in my life have I felt afraid of being left out or not chosen? Two, 
how could I tend to that younger part of me? Three, if I can honor and tend to that hurt younger part of me, how do I want to show up as the mother-in-law? Right? By tending to our little selves, we get to show up as the most grand, inclusive, big-hearted version of ourselves today. What do I want to remember about myself and who I want to be in this new role? And five, when I'm making choices that are in line with who I want to be in this new role, how can I remember to celebrate myself? That's a huge part of it, isn't it? When we catch ourselves showing up in grand, expansive, loving, inclusive ways, we've got to make sure we take the moment to celebrate ourselves. Her willingness to do that relational self-awareness work reduces the chances that she's going to act out her emotional responses and increases the chances of building healthy relationships with her co-in-laws and with the couple themselves. So bottom line here, when two people become a couple, they cast their whole entire family system into a new developmental phase and they cast the individual family members into new roles. And new roles are not easy, but they are teachers nonetheless. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. I'm giving you a little mid-episode reminder that if you are already a newsletter subscriber, in next week's newsletter, you are going to receive the companion worksheet for this episode delivered right into your inbox. And if you are not already a newsletter subscriber, you can head to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash subscribe to join the newsletter. You also can click the link in the show notes. Okay, let's keep going. I want to talk to you a little bit about some particularly dicey gendered dynamics that can come up in the space between a couple and one partner's parents. There was a 26-year-long longitudinal study that was led by psychologist and University of Michigan researcher, Dr. Terry Orbuck, and she found that when a husband reported having a close relationship with his wife's parents, the couple's risk of divorce decreased by 20%. But when a wife reported having a close relationship with her husband's parents, the couple's risk of divorce increased by 20%. What the heck? First of all, let me say, for the record, this was research done with heterosexual couples 
and that is limited and a reflection of where research has tended to be. And we're moving away from it slowly and steadily. But it is an unfortunate reality that most of the research we have is with married couples and heterosexually married couples. So when Orbach was asked about these findings, risk of divorce decreases by 20% when he says he's close to her parents, but it increases by 20% when she says that they're close to his parents. What Orbach says is, quote, women value a close relationship with their in-laws, but may ultimately view them as meddling, while men are more interested in providing for their families and they take their in-laws' actions less personally. Because relationships are so important to women, their identity as a wife and a mother is central to their being. They interpret what their in-laws say and do as interference into their identity as a spouse and a parent. Notice your reactivity if you're having any. I think there's a lot of heteronormative, traditional, gender role-bound assumptions made in Orbach's review of the finding, while at the same time, we have to challenge ourselves to know and accept that patriarchal definitions of marriage, especially when we're talking about a heterosexual couple, those are the backdrop against which a heterosexual relationship is formed. So we have to hold on to this reality even as we strive to subvert it. I want to take all of this a step further. In the example I was talking about a moment ago about our hypothetical new mother-in-law and some of her reactivity, I chose to describe a heterosexual couple and his mother. And that's not a coincidence. As my team and I were brainstorming for this episode, we were struck by the fact that there definitely seems to be far more stereotypes about problematic mother-in-laws then there are stereotypes about problematic father-in-laws. In the film Meet the Parents, Robert De Niro plays a problematic father-in-law who's suspicious of his son-in-law as he was getting to know him. But De Niro aside, I gotta say that the predominant cultural trope is that meddling and overbearing mother-in-law. Think about the movie Monster-in-Law with Jennifer Lopez. Think about Marie Barone in Everybody Loves Raymond. Think about Molly Shannon's character in season one of White Lotus. That's a for sure, for sure cultural trope. And I remember learning in graduate school that the most problematic relationship triangle for family therapists to work with clinically is the triangle that goes husband, wife, husband's mother. This clinical idea likely stems from, reflects, and amplifies this cultural trope of the meddling mother-in-law. And as we've just seen with the Orbach data, there is some data to back it up. Gender role socialization helps us understand why that diciest triangle, potentially, is wife, husband, husband's mother. But let's zoom out a little bit. So if we're saying that that's the diciest triangle, why might that be? What might we look at as the cause? We're going to look, of course, at patriarchy. I was reviewing a 2021 research paper that was published in the Gates of Open Research that was about mother-in-law dynamics. And I read this, quote, in patriarchal societies, there are often expectations for a woman 
to live with her husband's family after marriage. Article goes on to cite Candiotti in 1998 identified the patrilocal extended household is the key element to the operation of classic patriarchal systems. What these sociologists found is that a major way that patriarchy perpetuates itself is patrilocal extended households, meaning that when he and she get married, they go and live near or with his family. That's part of how patriarchy perpetuates itself. Now, perhaps you're listening and you are someone who's going to live with your husband's parents upon marriage. Perhaps you already do live with your husband's parents. But even if you live thousands of miles from them, what this highlights to all of us is that part of how patriarchy perpetuates itself is by ensuring that male-headed households are enlarged when men get married, by ensuring that resources remain condensed within the male lineage. Like, how often do we think about that on a daily basis? But it's fascinating, and it's true, and it's significant. What this also tells us is that women in this system gain power and influence when their sons marry and the daughter-in-law is brought into the home. The article goes on to say, quote, women typically enter their new household with little status or power, and their mother-in-law, as the senior woman in the household, gains higher social status and more decision-making authority. So the dynamic here is that the mother in the system served her time, so to speak, when she was a young bride, and she and her husband joined his parents' household. And now she, thank you very much, is ready to gain authority and relinquish some caregiving responsibilities as her son brings his bride into the home. And I know this sounds super dated, but listen to this part. These researchers found that in five countries in particular, in Central and Southern Asia, Afghanistan, India, Nepal, Pakistan, and Tajikistan, more than 30% of women today live with their mother-in-law. Very often what happens, I think, is the women in these families are sort of bound by a chain of sacrifice. Like I sacrificed for my mother-in-law and now it's time for you to sacrifice for me. So if you are living in Paris or Omaha or Cape Town, this might feel wholly irrelevant to you. But I suspect there's an echo that we all can connect with because patriarchy shapes all of our family relationships to some degree. We even can imagine that if the mother has been more in the driver's seat of caregiving and domestic leadership when she was raising her children, then when her son grows up and builds a partnership with somebody else, if that traditional model is replicated, his partner is now providing the same caregiving and domestic leadership in that household that the mother once provided to him and for him, which means the situation is ripe for comparison. The new partner may feel and express her own frustration that her husband was so, you know, doted upon by his own mother and therefore struggles to partner with her as equals. Or the mother may deem that her son's new wife doesn't care as well for him or as attentively 
for him as she once did. And therefore, she might have some critical feelings of his new partner and how she maintains the house. Or his mother might simply observe the fact that the couple runs their household differently than the mother ran her household. And therefore, that might feel like a rejection of what she had provided to him for so many years. Listen, I am neither justifying nor condemning any of this. I'm just highlighting some tender layers that may be operating beneath the surface, that we sense something's going on, but we can't quite see it. We haven't named it. We can't quite put our finger upon it. And what this analysis points me to is, of course, the need to continue to shed layers of patriarchy. That way, parents of all genders model that domestic and emotional labor is the responsibility of both of the adults in the home. And that way, girls and boys both grow up feeling as comfortable tending to the home as they do kicking booty out in the world of work. And that way, women no longer are put in a position where they need to derive their worth, their value, their power from the quality of care they provide, as has been the case for so, so many years. And I see this all the time. When the older generation sees the younger generation creating marriages that are far more equitable than their own, they may become critical of that marriage and how they do things as a reflection of some quite understandable jealousy. It's like, wait a minute, if you get to be more free than I ever was, I'm going to criticize you because I resent you. Through that lens, it makes sense that a mother-in-law may have a naughtier set of feelings about her adult kid's relationship than a father-in-law would have, right? Because that father-in-law's wings had not been clipped by a patriarchal model of marriage in the same way. Another factor that makes the husband-wife-husband's-mother triangle the most potentially thorny triangle of them all is this. Even if a heterosexual couple is a dual-career couple, the research has found consistently and repeatedly and very, very clearly that the wife or female partner bears the brunt of most of the emotional and domestic labor, which includes things like making sure that gifts, you know, are purchased and wrapped and delivered, making social plans, planning travel, checking up on sick family members, and on and on and on. In fact, research by the United Nations found that women do 2.6 times the unpaid care and domestic work that men do. This means that we all have deemed it to be quote-unquote normal to expect her to carry the brunt of these responsibilities. This means that there are 2.6 times the opportunities for his parents, his mother, to deem the young wife to be favoring time with her own family or to deem the young wife as not being caring enough or not prioritizing time with them enough or to be too invested in her career. We can mitigate a lot of the conflict 
and passive-aggressive comments, et cetera, et cetera, by questioning why do we expect this young wife to be in charge of all of this stuff anyways, right? It's like we have to acknowledge that the default setting, if women do 2.6 times the unpaid care and domestic work, it's what has been downloaded inside of all of us as the normal way to do it. So it's like we hold a male partner and a female partner to different standards. And if something hasn't gotten done, planning travel to see his parents, if something hasn't been done that, you know, his dad didn't receive a birthday card in a timely manner, the assumption, we're at risk of making the assumption that it's the wife who fell down in that responsibility rather than expecting that, of course, he's as able to manage the social calendar as she is. Of course, he's as able to put a card in the mail as she is. But I'm just, I'm naming and asking us to recognize that we have some pre-built in assumptions unless we're working on addressing them and challenging them. We basically, as a culture, as a collective, we've been training girls and women their entire lives to have their finger on the pulse of what everybody needs. And what that means is that we have not been training boys and men to have their finger on the pulse of what everyone needs. So when he fails to check in on a sick relative, the family might not even code it as a problem because nobody was expecting it in the first place. And in fact, when he does call to check in on a sick relative, he may get bonus kudos for being so thoughtful which may trigger the F out of his female partner. <laughs> Another layer I want to address is about a, the impact of estrangement on these dynamics. So Joshua Coleman has conducted research about estrangement between adult children and their families. You know, estrangement meaning adult kids being cut off from one or both of their parents. And what Joshua Coleman has found is one, estrangement is most commonly initiated by adult children cutting off their parents. It's far more likely if there's a family cutoff that the adult kid cut off their parents versus the parents cutting off their adult kids. Two, the risk of estrangement is higher when the parents are divorced from each other. So an adult kid is more likely to cut off one or both parents when those parents are divorced from each other. And three, adult children are far more likely to be estranged from their father than from their mother. So the most likely scenario is a mom and a dad get divorced and an adult kid cuts themselves off from their father. That's the most kind of prototypical, the most statistically likely scenario. So wait, how does that fit in here? What I'm thinking about is that there are lots of scenarios where the wife, husband, husband's mother triangle is that much trickier because the mother-in-law may not have a partner of her own, potentially because they've been divorced and potentially because the son may be cut off from his dad, right? So the mother-in-law is flying solo here and may not have a partner of, of her own who potentially could serve 
as a resource. There's no guarantee that the mother-in-law's partner would serve as a neutralizing resource, but certainly I've seen that happen many times where the mother-in-law is feeling competitive or neglected or intrusive, and she's got a partner who has the ability to say, babe, I love you, but you got to back up or you got to keep your opinion to yourself or you got to come with me on vacation or whatever. So very often, you know, there's a partner there who can run interference, be a little bit neutral, kind of be a support to the mother-in-law, help her metabolize and process some of these dynamics. So if she doesn't have that, it means that she's kind of on her own as she tries to figure out the dynamics with her son and with his partner. And if she raised this son on her own, she may be that much closer to him as single mamas often are. And when he begins to turn towards this relationship with his partner, even though it is 100% developmentally appropriate and good and happy and rationally, the mama gets that. It may just be also that she has that much of a harder time letting go. And again, none of this is an excuse, but what I'm doing here is adding layers of complexity that help us move from a pretty uninteresting, my mother-in-law is toxic narrative and move towards a narrative that includes some nuance about your mother-in-law's process and her grief and some of the challenges that she may face as she makes this transition. And before we wrap up today, I want to address another layer here, which is a variation on this theme that queer couples may experience with their partner's in-laws. Lots of what we've talked about today applies to queer couples, but I want to highlight some ways this dynamic of a complicated set of in-laws may play out differently for a queer couple. In the best of worlds, both sets of in-laws are in a magnificent battle for who is the most inclusive, who is the most accepting, who is the most celebratory, right? Like that is like our favorite kind of competition. We love that. That's wonderful. In the worst of worlds, you may feel like your partner's parents somehow, quote unquote, blame you for their adult child's sexuality which is made ever more tricky if you are your partner's first queer relationship. If you are your partner's first queer partner, it means that your partner's parents are stepping in to a new chapter of their journey with their adult child's queerness, right? Your presence in their adult kid's life might feel to them like it makes their adult kids' sexuality real in a way that perhaps it had not felt real before. Has this adult child's sexuality always been real? Yes. Does it feel more real when they see their adult child in a queer relationship? Yes. Is it your job as the partner to help your in-laws get comfortable with your presence in their adult child's life? No. Will it be easier for you to practice patience if you see your partner's parents making an effort to do their own internal work of expanding and adapting and celebrating? Yes. 
can you make your partner's parents do that work? No. (laughs) If they are unwilling to do that work, will you need to practice some self-protection? Yes. My friend Chris Rose from The Pleasure Mechanics talks about the need to honor what she calls queer wisdom, which is that deep intuitive sense of moving into spaces and relationships that are safe and celebratory and moving away from spaces and relationships that are not. And so you get to practice your queer wisdom always, always, always. All right, I think that we have covered plenty of ground for one episode. Make sure that you follow the show wherever you get your podcast so that you can tune in to next week's episode where I'm going to offer some relational self-awareness prompts and guidance for the partner who's struggling in their relationship with their in-laws. And I'm going to offer relational self-awareness prompts and guidance for the partner who is perhaps feeling a bit caught between their parents and their partner. And I'm going to give you a set of strategies designed to help you as a couple protect your relationship from the wear and tear of in-law challenges. Remember that if you are already a newsletter subscriber, in next week's newsletter, you're going to get the companion worksheet. And if you are not a subscriber, you can head to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash subscribe to join the newsletter, or you can click the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for tuning in to Reimagining Love. And until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.